0: Welcome, everyone, to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross. This will be the first of many classic editions of Monday Match Analysis where I go back and take a look at a match from the past. I'm really excited to get this started. This is uh, this, the solution to the fact that there will be no live tennis for the foreseeable future. Hope everyone is safe and healthy. Uh, this gives me uh, and everyone else you know, an opportunity to... To go back and look at some of the matches that are the most interesting, the most impactful. Normally, I'm kind of at the mercy of whatever happens. And if it's a junky, uninteresting match, well, guess what? Nothing we can do about it. But now, we have total control. And we can basically handpick matches that will be the most fun to go back and analyze. So... Uh, some other housekeeping things is I'm not gonna stick to every Monday. There's no reason to keep it to every Monday. I'm just gonna do these whenever I can, as often as I can. I've already tweeted. Uh, it was actually last week, so you'll have to go. You'll have to go back a bit. But I already tweeted on my uh, account at Gil Gross for suggestions on old matches that I should cover. I will also do a community post at some point asking for your suggestions of old matches that I should cover. The only two rules, and one of them I'm breaking for this one, but the only two rules is it's got to be before 2015, and it has to be available on YouTube in full. So we start with the 1980 Wimbledon final, a match that was suggested to me on Twitter by Keith Kobland, um, and a match that a lot of people remember for a lot of reasons, it was even documented in the form of a film in 2017 called Borg versus McEnroe and i watched the film in preparation for this match i'll get to that and i'll i'll talk about the film in, in a moment but uh the reason why i guess that this was so hyped up is because essentially you had borg who had won the last four wimbledons he was going for a fifth straight, no one had ever done that before, he was 25 years old, Um, meanwhile McEnroe was a young up-and-comer looking for his his first Grand Slam title, everyone knew that he would be a future world number one, a future Grand Slam champ, the question is, when slash would he dethrone the king Bjorn Borg, who was winning French Opens at an insane rate, and as I said, the last four Wimbledons. So the young lion versus the kinda versus the king. You, and then you also had a natural rivalry that reminds me so much of what Federer and Nadal have. Uh, you have John McEnroe, who's still today known for his fiery behavior on the court, whether it be yelling at umpires or getting into fights with his opponents or being hostile with uh, the press after a match, McEnroe wore his emotions on his sleeve and his reputation was that of a brat. Meanwhile, Borg was the Iceman. Some people called him Iceborg. Do I know if people called him that? No, but because I wasn't alive. But I think people called him that. So I'm going to go with it. The Iceborg, he showed no emotions. In fact, there's also an HBO documentary about their rivalry titled Fire vs. Ice. That one I couldn't get to. I got restless and wanted to make this video already. Um, So you have contrasting personalities. You also have contrasting game styles. Again, with Federer and Nadal, what makes that rivalry so popular? Well, one of the things is the contrasting play styles with Federer's elegance versus Nadal's... um, strength, power, and force, right? The ballerina versus the bull or, or whatever, you know, however people like to frame that. Well, versus with Borg and McEnroe, you had Borg who revolutionized the game in some ways. The, the first to hit with topspin consistently, the first to um, be, you know, your traditional baseliner, kind of hit with uh, two hands on the backhand, which was rare for the time. And he kind of took... He kind of took a hand off. So it's it's not... it's a, It was a two-handed backhand for sure because the left hand was very active in the stroke. But he also did kind of follow through with a one-handed um, approach. Um, but Borg was the first to be really a baseliner, I would say. And McEnroe was your classic net rusher, serve volleyer. So... Not only did you have the contrasting personalities, you had the contrasting uh, play styles. They meet, 1980 Wimbledon final, um, and it's the biggest match these two have played. It's going to kind of define their rivalry, and it turned into a very epic five-setter. As I said... Uh, the full match is not available on YouTube. This is the only time I'll make an exception to the rule because I'm going to watch the full match for for every single one that I do besides this one. In this case, I I made an exception because I want to go back to 1980. Normally, I'm not going to want to do that because I'm at a disadvantage in a couple areas. I do not understand the landscape of tennis at that time because I didn't live through it don't understand the tactics as well. I am not as equipped as others to actually break down why so-and-so won so-and-so match, but I want to use the modern game as a framework to look at this match. And I'll specifically look at the epic fourth set tiebreak, a very, very famous tiebreak, as a way to analyze the old way of that tennis was played. As a way to analyze that, compare it, use the modern game as a framework, and to talk about why the game has changed. That's what I want to focus on here. I'm not going to focus on why... Should I split? Yeah. I, I'm not going to focus on why Borg won this match in five sets. Normally, going, moving forward... Again, this is different. Moving forward, I'm going to pretend it's a regular Monday match analysis on the Monday after whatever... Match happened. For this one, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna treat it like that. I want to look at why the game uh, has changed and why it's not played like this anymore. All right, let's uh, get into that. Then I'll look at the film, and then we'll go through this fourth set tiebreak. That'll be the finale. So, first of all, I acknowledge that Borg was a baseliner. That's what he was known to do. That was his play style. However, when he was playing on grass, when he played at Wimbledon, he was, he was a serve volleyer. And I charted some stats in this fourth set tiebreak. There were 34 total points. 31 of them were serve and volleys. Borg served and volleyed on every single first serve. The only three points that were not serve and volley points were off of Borg second serves when sometimes he stayed back. Even, even so, the longest rally was three shots. It's pretty incredible when you think about it. Borg retired at 26 years old. He only played the Australian Open once, lost in the third round. So he was pretty much just didn't play the Australian Open. Uh, He made the U.S. Open final a bunch of times but curiously did not win it. I'm actually curious as to why. It's interesting. But by the time he was 26, he had won um, six French Opens, five Wimbledons, 11 Grand Slam titles. He He was on a great trajectory, a trajectory that is equal to what we now know as the three greatest men's tennis players of all time, Nadal Djokovic, Federer, right? Um, so Borg not only was on pace with the big three that we know today, but was playing a completely different style dependent on the surface, which was incre, which is incredibly impressive to me. I went back cause I wanted reference and I watched the 1981 French open final between Borg and Yvonne Lendl and the, it was a night and day difference with how Bjorn Borg was playing. He didn't serve volley on clay and on grass. He was a servant volleyer. So nowadays, and maybe it's because of court speed homogenization. Nowadays, you have players playing similar game styles comparatively to, to what it was in this day, similar game styles on your fastest surfaces and your slowest surfaces. It, you know, it's kind of the same skills being implemented, but, it's almost like Borg was a Grand Slam champion as two different players, as Grasscourt Borg and Claycourt Borg. Grasscourt Borg was a servant volleyer and Claycourt Borg was a, was a baseliner. That's incredible to me. So that's a tangent on Bjorn Borg's greatness, which I don't think should be underlooked. Longevity counts, and longevity will always kind of hurt his, his standing within this conversation. You know, when when Pete Sampras passed Borg in in Grand Slam titles, a lot of people kind of I think put Pete Sampras up there at, at number one. Anyway, so that's kind of what we had. So I just want to qualify that because Borg was a baseliner, but here he was not a baseliner. He was not. So the question is, why were players? What happened? To, what happened to the serve and volley? Why did it die? Why is it gone? And even in baseline play, why are players less apt to rush the net as soon as they possibly can? Well, I think the answer to that question is in that fourth bullet point. If you see serve return stats, there were eight unreturned serves. I just wanted to account for those. But when the return was above net level or at net level... Because I needed to make a tiebreaker, I, any any ball that was kind of close, I said was above net level. The server was nine and five, nine points won, five points lost. When the return either bounced, so that's those three baseline rallies, or a half volley at the net, or when the volley was below net level, the advantage flipped to the returner. The returner was eight and four. So here's my opinion, watching old tennis, studying old tennis, and understanding the modern game. I think height was the single biggest factor in the ability and so the effectiveness and the necessity of net rushing in old school tennis, because I I think there's two frameworks to look at, and I'll go back to this effectiveness, right? So how... Um, how effective is coming to the net, and then necessity, which is in order to create offense, how necessary is it that I go to the net? And effectiveness and necessity will affect frequency. How often am I going to the net? So if you look at effectiveness only, and I want to focus on effectiveness right now, the effectiveness completely depended on height, Am I getting a high volley? And everyone knows this. Am I getting a high volley so I'm going to get to to volley it above the level of the net? Or am I getting a low volley or a half volley where I actually need to hit up on my volley in order to, to play an effective shot? And that singular fact really affected whether or not coming to the net was effective. So let's go to, to some film here. These are all points from the tie break. Here's a high return, there's the volley, and again it's freezing, I need to figure this out why it's freezing, and there's a winner, here's another, high return, above the level of the net, it's an easy serve volley, textbook, but look what happens when the return is low, there's a half volley, you gotta pop it up, and it's an ineffective drop volley, Later in the in the in the show, I'm going to go back and we're going to go through almost every point in this tiebreak. Or I'll skip a bunch of the points, but anyway, we're going to go through this fourth set tiebreak, this epic famous tiebreak. And just pay attention to this. How does the height of the return affect um affect serve volleying and how effective it is. If you ask me what happened to serve volleying it's all about topspin. It is all about topspin because we know topspin to be the number one thing that affects the height of the ball. And of course, the topspin rotation gets the ball to dip down low. It is too easy. It is with modern string technology and, ma- and modern racket technology, it is too easy to dip the ball below the level of the net. And I know this is discussed all the time. Oh, modern racket technology has killed serve volley, has destroyed the net game. If you go deeper, though, I'm I'm saying this is, to me, the number one reason why. It is too easy to get the ball low. And that's why you saw this die out and phase out. And by the way, it's becoming very difficult to unequivocally say who has the best net game in men's tennis. And when I did my Hulk video last week, and I got to the net category. It was difficult. There are a lot of players with good, solid volleys when they use them. But there aren't a lot of players who rely on coming to the net as their primary mode of winning points. And if I have to think back, who are the last serving volleyers? Maybe Michael Yodra. I know Taylor Dent lasted a while. And then you have some mega servers such as an Ivo Karlovich who can still do it from time to time. But for the most part, no one does it every point anymore. It's completely extinct. And this is why. Check this out. I'm showing another video. This is from Indian Wells. Federer team is Team is literally on the back fence. And look at what topspin gives team the ability to do. This angle does not exist without modern racket and string technology. And even if this was in the middle of the court, it still would have been at Federer's feet because he dipped it down low. Again, it is too easy in the modern game to drop back and to take a cut at a return and to get enough topspin on the ball where it's dipping below the level of the net. And when the ball dips below the level of the net, it is suddenly very difficult to consistently win points on the next volley and to not get past and to not make an error. So... I think that's the common denominator. Now, there's also there's also a width factor with what angles you can create, especially on your cross-court angle. Topspin will e- enable um, sharper cross-court angles, which also aids in passing shots. And I read something, I, I haven't looked for myself, but I read something about how uh, Arthur Ash and Rod Laver used topspin only as a tool for passing shots. And that Borg was the first to consistently use Topspin. I don't know if that's true. But again, if it is, it comes back to this conversation where Topspin is really a great foil to the net game. And when a player is set, when a modern player is set um, and able to, to hit the shot that they're looking for, which is, which is to say that it's not a floater and it's not a slice and it's... It's got some weight behind it. That shot almost always includes a fair bit of topspin. Um, let's get to the second part of it. Necessity. The second reason the net game was so prominent is because that was the only means of offense. That there wasn't really another option for an effective means of offense. And even when I went back and watched Lendl and Borg on clay. Yes, they were staying back. Yes, there were long baseline rallies. But still, at the end of the day, if you wanted to finish the point. Hitting winners from the baseline was not a realistic and repeatable way to create offense. Back in 1980... A short ball was merely an opportunity to come to the net, hit an approach shot, and finish a volley. That's what a short and weak ball was. It was simply an opportunity to come in. It was not an opportunity to create offense from the baseline like it is today. Now if a ball's weak, well, now I can be aggressive with a ground stroke and possibly hit a winner and finish the point from the baseline. It just wasn't really an option here. It wasn't an effective option Sometimes you saw winners from the baseline, but it was really, really rare. So a short ball automatically meant, okay, I got a short ball. Now I can come in. The calculus is completely different now. Now if you get a short ball, it's okay. I'm going to attack this ball. But am I quite certain that my opponent's next shot will be so weak that it is safe to come in? That is now the calculus. If I get a short ball and I'm aggressive and I hit the next shot, as soon as that ball leaves my racket, I'm calculating, is the next ball going to be an absolute floater that I can definitely, you know, hit a high volley or will the entire court be open for me because I've pulled my opponent off the court? That's now my calculus Is, is, will my next volley be easy enough that I can come in? Or should I stay back, wait for another, hope to get another short ball? Or can I finish the point from here? on this next ball, even though I'm on the baseline. That calculus did not exist. It used to be, here's a short ball, now I can come in, because that's my only means of ending this point, of finishing this point. All right, let's get to the film. And then we'll get to the tiebreak. Uh, Borg versus McEnroe, I watched it last night. Um, it's not, it wasn't for me. Now, I thought it It was... Uh, probably enjoyable for a lot of people. And I read the reviews. It got pretty good critical acclaim too. On Rotten Tomato, it's 87%. It's a tennis movie. That's awesome. That's great. We all love tennis here. Otherwise, you're not here. Um, But I found myself always wondering what has been dramatized and what is true. And I think that's just a personal thing. I prefer documentary, I prefer nonfiction, and that is just my natural intuition. Especially when it comes to tennis, I I was constantly wondering, is this dramatization or is this reality? And that impeded my ability to enjoy the film. Now, putting on my objective review goggles here. So I'm taking my enjoyment completely out of it. Uh, it did a really good job of developing Borg's character. In fact, most of the movie was dedicated to Beyond Borg character development from the time he was a child to the time he was a teenager from the time he was a pro. Most of the film was dedicated to that. It did a very half-baked job of um, developing John McEnroe's character. I know the filmmaker is uh, Scandinavian, uh, and the reason I didn't specify is because I think I think it's a Finnish uh, filmmaker, but I, I hope I'm not wrong. Norwegian Finnish something. Um, so, perhaps it's not a coincidence that the film did a much better job and, honestly, just dedicated more time to developing Borg's character, but it did a good job of that. Then, the, the last third of the film was actually the match, and the... It, 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 it It didn't grab me. It didn't grab me. I kind of wish that real footage was used, honestly. It's kind of what I wish. Anyway, I think i'm I'm very partial to I love i'm a I'm a big sports documentary guy. Um in fact, I'm using this time of uh, self quarantining and staying home really to delve through ESPN's thirty for thirty catalog. And try to watch as many as I can. So I'm a big sports doc guy. And this was a little bit out of my comfort zone. And it kind of bothered my enjoyment. That I was constantly wondering what was true and what wasn't. Let's get to this tie break. And uh, try to keep in mind some of the things that I've been talking about when it comes to the net game we pick up our action at five all now this is a fourth set tie break uh, Borg leads two sets to one and we get a serve here five all and this is one of the this is one of the three baseline rallies of the entire match and I think it's a really good representation of how Borg could implement the modern game. This is a classic serve plus one return in the middle of the court. Borg hits a cross court backhand. McEnroe um, can't make the pass here. It's a forced error. Classic serve plus one here with the topspin backhand by Borg. So uh, this was fascinating. This next point at five six. So now it is set point for uh, excuse me match point championship point for Bjorn Borg. Look how this could have ended. This is very interesting. This this whole tiebreak could have ended 7-5 Borg, if not for a tremendous serve and volley by McEnroe. I actually have the, the gif of it. And again, it's freezing. I apologize. Let me restart this. I mean, that, that's unreal. Now, I know I've covered Borg. I've been a little bit biased towards Borg. The one thing that McEnroe... If I were to make a Hulk but included um, greatest... Uh, included all-time players... John McEnroe had to have the best drop volley of all time. Again, I don't pride myself in my historianism, but I I think that's true. McEnroe had incredible, incredible hands. Now, But I want you to focus on another thing here. Look how close he gets to the net. Watch how he closes the net. Keep in mind, this is a serve and volley. It was very important, by the way. McEnroe had a slice serve. It wasn't very fast. It moved a lot. Uh, he placed it well. It wasn't very fast. Keep in mind, that is more time to close the net. But how close McEnroe gets to the net is absolutely unbelievable. Borg runs around. He was great at hitting run-around forehands on the return. Runs around, tries to get the inside-out angle. And if McEnroe didn't close the net, it would have been a near-impossible volley. But look how close he gets to the net there. He nearly touches it, and great hands. He barely split steps. He kind of just charges there. If he split stepped, I'm sure he wouldn't have gotten actually as far in. Uh, But what a play by McEnroe to save match point. So we skip ahead now to 7-6. This is another match point for Bork. And here we see one of the many... Chokes in this tiebreak. There were a few chokes. I just gave you an example of a wonderful championship point saved by McEnroe. No choke there. On this one, McEnroe's return wasn't very good. Borg gets a high volley and he blows it. It was too central. And McEnroe has a really good look at this pass. And he makes it as this Borg volley goes into the net. So that was 7-6. Now 7-all. Um, We're going to skip ahead here to 14-13. Now McEnroe actually gets himself a set point on serve to tie it up at two sets apiece. And let's just see. Let me look at my notes because I charted every point. Let's see how he got here. Uh, At 13-all, serve and volley by Borg, and and the return was low. And he missed a cross-court volley. So again, low return. Um, That set up this set point. Another choke. McEnroe has the entire court open. And I'm sure if he lost this tiebreak, he would have never forgiven himself for this volley. Because it was waist-level, forehand volley. The entire court is open. And he missed it wide. McEnroe could not believe he missed this volley. At 16-15, we get another match point for McEnroe on his serve. At 15-all, another great low backhand return by McEnroe down the line uh, set up a cross-court volley by Borg that set up a, a McEnroe pass. So McEnroe, again has a waist-level, this is between the knees and the waist, waist waist-level volley with a lot of the court open. And that time, his technique totally broke down. He pulled off the shot, and he missed it by about 10 feet. 16 all. Oh, this is not in order. What the heck happened here? Apologies, I thought this was in a completely different order, um, or I thought I thought I had had finished putting this in order. So let's do this again and go to some of the points that we missed. So here's six all. Another really good backhand pass by Borg, and this is similar to the match point that Borg won won it in the fifth set. It's kind of low, but his backhand pass again. He put topspin on his backhand, so his passing shots were good even when the ball was low. This is what might be a difficult pass for a lot of players in this era. 8-7, here's a, here's a a match point for McEnroe where I think this might have been his first excuse me set point for McEnroe. This might have been his first set point, and he missed the spot on the serve. Look at this, right in Borg's wheelhouse at 8-7. And then this was kind of famous because McEnroe ended up Lying face first on the uh, on the grass here, but this was just not a good serve. Reminiscent though of I think what would happen a lot in uh, in in modern day if players tried to play serve and volley. Here's eight all, McEnroe with the high volley here, easy put away. Again, height of the return makes a huge difference. Let's look at eight nine Borg trying to save a set point. High return by McEnroe off the serve volley. And Borg, down the line, puts the volley away. We go to 11-11. High return. Open court. McEnroe cannot make this pass. Not even close. And the funny part about this screen grab is, I think, you know, if you think about Nadal, and I paused it right here, you might think, I don't know, is he going to make the pass? Maybe he will, maybe he won't. But, you know, with, with the old racket technology... It was almost out of the question. McEnroe has no chance here, and I'm pretty sure if I remember correctly, this pass hits the bottom of the net. Now 12-13. Borg trying to save another set point, and this was probably his best volley of the entire tiebreak, because this is a good low return, and look at the depth he gets on this volley. In my opinion... McEnroe thought he won He won it right here. I think McEnroe thought he was about to win. And Borg comes up with a great volley, puts it right smack on the baseline, and McEnroe dumps the pass into the net. We move ahead to 13-all. Out wide serve by Borg. McEnroe, good low backhand return. And this volley hits the net. We skip ahead. Let's see what happened on the next point. Um, so that made it that made 14-13 McEnroe, and I showed you that easy missed volley wide when McEnroe had the entire court. That was after this point. So the low backhand return, keep this in mind, the low backhand return uh, set up the, the set point where he missed that easy volley. Let's move ahead to 14-all. This looks like a, a pretty... This is a high return, forehand volley from McEnroe, beautiful drop volley, deadens the pace there. Uh, Let's see what happened on the next point after that. So that was at 14-all, drop volley winner by McEnroe, um, but he now Borg serving at 14-15, McEnroe missed the pass wide. We go to 15-all. This is one of the most famous points of the tiebreak, another low down-the-line backhand return by McEnroe. Borg has to hit up on this volley. He can't put it away. McEnroe gets a look at the pass and makes it down the line. 16-17. Oh, that's it. So hold on. So that was at um, 15-all. Now at 16-15, serve and volley. It was the backhand volley that I showed you that missed by 10 feet. Again, I apologize. I thought these were in order. Remember that backhand volley that was kind of waist level, and it wasn't even close. It was the worst volley ever. So that made it 15-all. No, that made it 16-all. Serve and volley on the second serve, and Borg ran around the backhand to try to hit a forehand pass off the return and missed it just wide by inches. That set up this, and the final choke was this volley where Borg went for the drop volley, but could not make it. And that was the tiebreak, as Borg put that volley into the net. So McEnroe got into a rhythm there late in that tiebreak, where with the exception of the the set point where Borg missed a very makeable volley, McEnroe was, especially on his backhand return, he kept finding that down-the-line return to make Borg hit a low backhand volley, and that set up a bunch of mini-breaks uh, towards the tail end of that tiebreak. He he choked away two set points before he finally converted on one, but uh, nonetheless, I thought that McEnroe got a better rhythm on his return than uh, than Borg did when it... When it counted at the end of this tiebreak, we're talking about a couple points, and that's how this played out. In the fifth set, Borg had his kind of his signature way of somehow putting that in the rear view, putting it behind him, and playing uh, an excellent fifth set, which people could not believe at the time that Borg was able to mentally put that past him. Borg would. Borg and McEnroe would play again in the 1981 Wimbledon final, and McEnroe would get the best of him. And Bjorn after that match said, The weird thing is I don't even care. I'm not even that disappointed that I lost. And that's when he knew that he needed to retire. Borg cared so deeply about winning. Called this fourth set loss in the tiebreak of Wimbledon, called it one of the worst failures of his career and he just lost a fourth set tiebreak and then he won the match Borg was so ultra competitive really reminds me of Nadal in a lot of ways to be honest with you with the superstitions and uh just just the intense intense caring um but I would argue it went too far and I think Nadal for Nadal it does not go too far where Nadal has good perspective and it didn't it doesn't really drain on the rest of his life his his deep passion for competing does not bleed into his emotional and psychological well-being with Bjorn Borg certainly the filmmakers depicted it this way and i think just the fact that borg had to retire early just goes to show that Borg was so ultra competitive that was that it was affecting his mental health in ways that he could not go on and he could not continue. and that put a longevity to, to a halt, his longevity to a halt, and ended what could have been a run at some of the all-time records in men's tennis. Borg was this incredible mover, had this incredible modern game, such a great athlete. So talented in in so many facets of the game, known for his baseline play, but had a really big serve and had underrated volleys. Uh, But psychologically, there was just a double-edged sword where his competitiveness was was a blessing and a curse in the way that it made him meticulous about his preparation and his uh, hard work, but it also was psychologically unsustainable. So there you have it. I think a lot was loaded into this um, about why the net game has... It hasn't died. I I hate that. It hasn't died. Serving volley on every point, that's died. And why the frequency of the net game has taken a drastic dip. And the effectiveness of net rushing has taken a dip. And when I use the term net rushing... I really use that as a way to say that I don't think every time you come to the net you're net rushing. Or I don't know. I maybe I'm maybe I'm getting crazy here, but net rushing as a tactic of kind of okay, there's a short ball, let me just chip and charge and try to make my opponent hit a pass. If you dare players in the modern game to pass you, they will pass you. And that wasn't always the case. So that's why I think the complexion of the game has changed. Again, this was a 34-point tiebreak. And there were 31. 31 of those points were played at after uh, serve and Volley. So the game has completely changed. All right. We will continue this. Um, looking forward to continuing this series. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time.